I uh, le left a message. A message? What number did you call? Two, four, niner, five, six, seven, eight. I can't hear you. You're trailing off. And did I catch a niner in there? Hi there, and welcome to Baseball by Design. I am SportsLogos.net minor league baseball correspondent Paul Caputo, broadcasting live, as always, from the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame in my basement in Fort Collins, Colorado. In 2000, the Stockton Ports, the low A Stockton Ports in the California League, rebranded for what would be a short-lived identity. They called themselves the Mudville Nine, based off the team in the poem Casey at the Bat. That identity only lasted for two seasons in 2000 when they were a Brewers affiliate and in 2001 uh, when they were a Reds affiliate. Later in this episode, I'll be talking with Dan Simon, who created the brand for that team, the Mudville Nine. You'll hear a special reading of Casey at the Bat by a team of familiar voices. And Dan Simon will be back for a second segment in this episode with another of his studio Simon Stumpers. Right now, I'm very happy to be joined by Tom Seidler, who today is the Senior Vice President of Community and Military Affairs with the San Diego Padres. But before Tom got involved with Major League Baseball, was deeply involved with Minor League Baseball, and in fact was twice the California League Executive of the Year before getting involved with Major League Baseball and specifically the San Diego Padres. Tom, thank you so much for joining me. Great to, great to be here, Paul. Thanks for having me. Oh, it was such a such a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, this episode, we're not talking about the San Diego Padres. I've been to a Padres game, beautiful ballpark. It's a terrific place to see a ball game. We're talking about a different part of California now, Stockton, California, which uh, doesn't necessarily have quite the cachet that San Diego does. You were involved with a short-lived minor league baseball team, but a really fun brand called the called the Mudville Nine in Stockton, California. Can you tell me, first of all, just what your involvement was with that team? Yeah, so uh, one of my cousins and I uh, bought the team in, um, I guess it was 1998. And knowing it was kind of a fixer-upper minor league franchise, they, they had a dilapidated old ballpark. And um, and we, we liked the challenge of going in and, and hopefully breathing new life into the franchise called the Stockton Ports. And uh, as we dug in and, and worked with the city on plans for a new ballpark, we uncovered a, a claim to being the, the home of the fictional Mudville Nine, uh, written by Ernest Lawrence there back in 1888. And we kind of ran with it at Pursuit for a couple of, well, I guess for, yeah, the better part of two years, Pursuit, a new ballpark that would have been reminiscent of the old 19th century wooden ballparks and a new team identity and actually launched the new team identity out of the ballpark, which ultimately never, never got built. But we did play two years as a Mudville nine and uh, Dan Simon did some great um, logos and identity package. So it was, it was fun to have to bring the Mudville nine to life a bit for a couple of years uh, back in the, we announced it in late 1999. We announced it on 9999, so September 9th of 99. And then from that point forward for about uh, two years, yeah. The team played in 2000 and 2001. Uh, you referenced the fact that there was a connection, that Stockton has a, a claim to being the location uh, of the famous ballad, the Casey at the Bat with Casey, the mighty Casey striking out. Do you have any uh, any idea where that claim come from? What is it? Uh, why why does Stockton think that that's about about them? Well, when the poem was written in 1888, it was published in the San Francisco Examiner, and the author um, Ernest Lawrence there was um, from the Bay Area, and and there were stories that he had visited Stockton and and seen a minor league team they did have minor league baseball back then and it seen a team uh the, the author later after the poem was popular and and you know it was it was made into theatrical productions and movies and and short stories and short films but the author claimed oh there really wasn't a mudville it was sort of a you know a fictional account of his 
love of baseball and and um but anyway it's kind of fun the different cities there's cities around the country that claim to to be the home of mudville or the home of casey the main character anyway it, it was fun it's uh it's probably something that will never be proved but uh but fun to talk about i think that makes it even even more fun right like it's arguing who's you know it's like arguing who's the greatest uh baseball player uh, you know ever yeah. right like is there's no way to actually determine what you know what the case is there the the fact that it was i mean is a really good brand obviously designed by dan simon who i'll be talking to uh, later on in this episode uh do you have any thoughts about how come it uh only lasted the the two years and the team went back to the stockton ports brand well it really our, our idea for it was really going to be comprehensive to have a a ballpark that was reminiscent of the 19th century wooden ballparks and we did a lot of research at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and the historical experts there and the archivists really got excited about it and dug up old photos from the, the original 19th century polo grounds and other wooden ballparks and worked with the HNTB architectural firm and they got excited about it. You know, it's a very different kind of a project. Like there's a reason wooden ballparks aren't built anymore. They all burned down. Right. Truly. But we were going to find a way to do it where um, it would have been a blend of uh, modern, you know, fire safety and, and conveniences, but probably had some obstruction posts like the old ballparks had and, and, uh, you know, a fair amount of real wood and maybe some other faux wood. But I think without the ballpark um, to us, it didn't make sense to keep the name alive. Sure. The brand itself very much has that sort of old timey feeling, right? Like it's got the the character with the the handlebar mustache and the uh the you know, so the old timey ball cap. When these plans were out there and and you know you were going to have this this entire brand built around the construction of an old timey ballpark with this old timey brand, how did the community of Stockton react to that? What was the response in in Stockton itself? It's like with any new name, you kind of get, you know, you get the old guard that that, that doesn't like to change. Uh, I've done that a couple of times in my career. And usually those folks take a little while to come around. Like they love baseball, love the team, love the team name as it is. So we had some of that, that that's fairly common with name changes. And then um, just the, the merchandise popularity skyrocketed. So we knew there were a lot of especially younger kids and and families and people that appreciated history that that saw it we, we saw way more uh, we saw way more uh, interest in the merchandise nationally because the story of Casey at the bat and the Mudville nine is a um, you know well-known 100 and by now about 140 year old poem so it you know it, it gave the team a bit of a national recognition kind of like Bull Durham yeah, uh, and the Durham Bulls does today. You know, you, if you get um, into pop culture, it can really do wonders for your brand. That's for sure. And this was, you know, two thousand and two thousand one or or nineteen ninety nine when it was was unveiled. This was before minor league baseball teams really were getting their head around the idea that you know, hey, we could have our own identity and you know sell a lot of merchandise and be hyper local to the community. Now, when you look at this brand and you and you know you see this sort of old timey look and you think, oh, it's a that's a fun name. You can see a team doing it sort of like an alternate brand, maybe. But at the time, it was probably pretty far out there in the minor league baseball landscape. I mean, outside like the Lansing Lugnuts and the Carolina Mudcats, and like you mentioned, the the Bulls or the Toledo Mudhens, there weren't that many sort of like outrageous different names in minor league baseball. So this was pretty far out there in, in the minor league baseball landscape back then. Yeah. And I think it was, a, um, you have kind of the minor league, um, silly names, you know, that again, those tend to get criticized a bit by some when they're announced, but then people realize it's all in fun and, and appealing to kids. This was a little different tack kind of, you know, going back to a historical, fictional name but it was it was fun it, it was fun to work with dan simon on the logo it was fun to work with the architects in the hall of fame on um 
on a ballpark that kind of like at the end of the poem uh, struck out. But maybe at some point um, in my life or somebody else will bring it to life and do the ballpark and do it the right way. What a, what a metaphor for this brand, right? Like Casey at the bat struck out and then this this great idea with all yeah. this potential only lasted two seasons. So you were involved, obviously, in the California League for a while. You uh, the, the most recent stint before you went to the majors was with the Visalia Rawhide. I mentioned the Executive of the Year Awards, largely around, at least in Visalia, where where the attendance, you know, you, you went from one of the lowest attended teams to setting attendance records just sort of thinking about minor league baseball in general, what what was the what's the, what's the thinking in attracting attendees at a minor league baseball game? How do you how do you turn around a team that is low in attendance and start setting records? Yeah, I mean, there the 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 big turnaround was when we had ballpark renovations, and that, that's usually the main story with teams that have um, drastic attendance growth is. A new ballpark or a significantly renovated one mm-hmm. so that was really the the meat of the kind of resurgence of that franchise but uh, interestingly there the ballpark um today is i think 80 years old when we uh, did the renovations back in 2009 it was you know maybe 65 years old and had a ton of history beta pinson and kirby puckett had played there as the as the Visalia hometown player, but then, you know, visiting players included Mark McGuire and Pedro Martinez and Reggie Jackson. So they had a ton of Hall of Fame players that had stepped on that field. So it was kind of neat there that we could keep the field and the location and just make some modern um, fan facilities and, and modern player facilities to build around it. So you have this historical field, but then instead of a dilapidated ballpark, you have, um, you know, what's going to draw modern families and fans today. So you've you've made the transition from minor league baseball to major league baseball. And, you know, there's obviously a closer relationship now between the affiliated minor league teams and the major league teams with major league baseball incorporating minor league baseball into into that their operation being you know that you've been with the Padres for for nine years and you know you're you're on the staff of a major league team how much do the major league teams consider the uh, the branding of their minor league affiliates like is there you know for the Padres have you have you given any thought to like you know what are the Lake Elsinore Storm up to these days? What are the El Paso Chihuahuas doing? How does that reflect on the Major League franchise, or is that still like entirely uh, separate from from your operations as a team? Yeah, we're not really involved. There are some Major League teams that own their minor league affiliates or own some of their minor league affiliates. We, we have separate ownership, so we have four great affiliates. You mentioned like Elsinore, and as you move up the ladder, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the Tin Caps, and they do a great job and have a great ballpark. And San Antonio at Double A, and then El Paso Triple A. And um, what each of those teams do, they recognize how popular the Padres' identity and color change was. A few years ago when we changed back to brown and gold and and now we're the only brown and gold team in uh, major league baseball so all those teams do some um brown and gold uh, uniform days now where they you know kind of tie into the padres that way and and it's you know they're carrying the padres of the future so it's kind of neat that they've embraced that but much more since we went to brown and gold when we were blue there wasn't much um, pizzazz with that brand (laughs) and the minor league teams didn't do much with it, but I think the Brown and gold is so popular and iconic and, and that, you know, with the team success now too, marquee players, I think the minor league affiliates are tying in more and saying, Hey, you know, it's, it's a good time to be a Padre affiliate. I do have to say as a fan of minor league baseball logos, I feel like the minor league baseball logo community owes a great debt of gratitude to the Padres for the swinging friar logo, because the swinging friar logo has inspired so many minor league logos of characters, you know, of, of characters swinging something, right? Like, so uh, that swinging friar logo is certainly, certainly iconic. 
Okay, I, I just want one more question about the Mudville Nine, and then I'll I'll let you get out of here. We got I got distracted because you know so much so much to talk about with your your storied career in in uh, professional baseball, more than thirty years now. So, Casey striking out. You know, you you look at Casey coming in here with all these expectations, and you know, and the and the 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 sort of rising anticipation of this at bat, and then he strikes out. Is there is there an occasion that you've seen in your baseball career that evokes that scene from the Mudville Nine? Is there a player you've seen, or is there something that you've seen where you think, "Oh my gosh, I just saw Casey at the bat"? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, in the book, the natural in the book, uh, the uh, Roy Hobb strikes out, but not <laughs> not in Hollywood. In the movies, Redford hits the home run. That's a, I'd have to think about that. That's a great question because, okay. you know, uh, on a on a nightly basis, we, we get highs and lows when the team wins or loses, and sometimes our our guys strike out at the end, and then the next day it's a new story. But um, it, it's it's kind of neat that in the poem he does strike out because so much of what's produced has a happy ending, and it's not always a happy ending in life or in baseball. <laughs> well, it's. I, you know, I have to tell you, I'm my, I grew up in the Philadelphia area. I'm a diehard Phillies fan. And I just feel like so much of my life has been spent watching, watching my team come up with these great expectations and then, you know, striking out. And so, which is why, and I apologize, I apologize for bringing this up to you with, uh, as a, as a, an employee of the Padres, but, you know, Bryce Harper's performance in the, in the playoffs this past year Remarkable. was so unreal for me as a Phillies fan, because it was so out of the, you know, expectation for me in my experience because normally that's the thing you know Casey at the bat is my experience as a baseball fan honestly <laughs> so all right Tom I got way off track on this and I I guess I should have figured that I would but uh, is there anything that I have not asked you about regarding the the Mudville 9 and that experience and you know that that brand or that team before I go talk to Dan here no I, I think it was just a fun labor of love for all of us and um you know, we, we didn't quite get the whole package because we didn't get that ballpark. But um, but I uh, I'm a bit of an optimist by nature. I think maybe at some point it happens. You know, maybe um, later in life, uh, my cousin or I or one of our family members brings it to life in full and and does it because the the Mudville Nine could be anywhere, right? I mean, it's a national poem. It's it's been referenced and spun off you know, hundreds of times over the last 130 years. So um, I'm optimistic Casey's going to get another, uh, another plate appearance. I love it. Do you, do you miss being involved with minor league baseball at all after all these years in the majors or is it, uh, is that a silly I question? Do. I, I love minor league baseball. I, I get down to visit our affiliates and at times um, other minor league games, but you know, the uniqueness of baseball and like all the ballparks are unique. Petco is very different from any other ballpark. And you don't have that really with the other sports. The other sports arenas and stadiums are less distinctive. I mean, just the fact that we can fool with the boundaries of what's in play and right. things like that make it. Um, I, I love visiting ballparks. I don't love visiting hockey arenas because they're all kind of similar, but. Um, and at the minor league level, they're even more unique from one to the other. So I'll always do that. I've got a five-year-old son now, and when he gets a bit older, we'll take some minor league road trips. Fantastic. I love it. Yeah, baseball is definitely the best sport. Tom, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and talking Thanks, about Tom. the Mudville Nine. Uh, thanks for all that you've done for baseball. Are you on social media? Can people find you on Twitter or Instagram? Or... I'm really not, but um, let's do this again in 30 years when we bring back Casey and the Mudville Nine. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much, Tom. Have a great one. Take care. All right. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate it. All right, everyone. Welcome back. I'm so happy to be joined once again by friend of the podcast, friend of me, Dan Simon of Studio Simon. Dan has been joining us regularly with his Studio Simon stumpers. That's not what we're talking about right now. We are talking about Dan's involvement with the Mudville 9 brand. Dan, how are you? I am fantastic, Paul. Always great to be on your podcast. It's like coming home. 
you and I talk fairly regularly. I don't think that's a secret by now for people who listen to this podcast. And I, I will often just say to you, hey, uh, you know, what's a what's a team that we should talk about? What is, you know, what what's a, you know, let, let's talk about some of your interesting brands. We're going to feature some teams and, and whether they're your brands or brands that other designers have created, you know, we're always talking about what are some interesting teams to feature. This Mudville 9 brand that you created is one that's come up a couple of times. It was one that you were particularly interested in featuring. Uh, a short-lived team in Stockton, California. What was it about this brand that that was appealing to you, the, the, a story that you wanted to to tell? Well, the the story that Mudville 9, Casey at the Bat, that poem was written, it was supposed to be a comedic poem, um, although I don't know how funny it really is, but um, it the 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 writer Ernest Fair. This is something that's probably not known to a lot of people. He went to Harvard University. You might people might know that, but he was also the editor of the Harvard Lampoon when he was there. So, and when he was hired by, if I've got my facts straight here, um, the San Francisco Chronicle for it in which the, the home originally appeared in 1888. Um, he was hired as a humorist and this was considered a humorous poem, but that's not what's, um, that's not why I like it. Why I like it is this is, this was a huge thing. Um, not so much at the time when the, the, the poem was released, but when it later became a regular act in a, um, a performer's stage acting. He would. It was. Oh gosh, I don't know the guy's name, but he was. Um, he was. He was a comedic performer who would do this on stage back in the days when there was not a heck of a lot else to entertain people. So people would go just listen to. They'd fill up theaters just to get whatever entertainment they could. And this. This performer would would basically recite the entire Casey at the Bat poem. Um, and it, it, he, he did it something like 10,000 times. And that's not, I don't think that's an exaggeration. That's my research tells us that. Uh, might've even been more than that. And, you know, th this poem was written decades before I was even born, um, over a hundred years ago now, and to this day, people, everybody still knows about, if you say Mighty Casey or Casey at the Bat, even if they're not big baseball fans, they've likely heard of it. And so when I was uh, presented with the opportunity to create a brand identity for the Mudville Nine, that was like, sign me up. <laughs> so um, so th this is baseball. Heck, my I have a son named Casey, and he's not the 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 fact that there was a mighty Casey that preceded him, and I our son is named Casey is not a coincidence. It is it is a base I, iconic baseball name, um, and thus I have a son named Casey. I also have a son named Cooper, my first son, who's named after a certain place where. Um, people make baseball pilgrimages, um, Cooperstown, New York, where the Baseball Hall of Fame is located. So Casey at, Casey at the Bat is baseball. That's like uh, when I named my first child Veteran Stadium. <laughs> so, so this poem was written in 1888, and I know that because I have it up on my screen in front of me, not because I have that information at my fingertips. So 1888, the, the poem was written. 1999 was when Tom Seidler and team had the idea to name a, a, a team, the Mudville Nine. And then 2000 and 2001 is when the when the team played the first line in the in the poem. And we're gonna we're gonna have the full poem at the end of this podcast. We've got a special performance of the the full poem at the end of this podcast. I'm gonna just like that comedian. I'm gonna read it 10,000 times. So, Wait, yeah. let me let me ask a question here. Yeah, um, have you yet listened to that, or have you read it yet? I have read it. Yes, so oh, I have okay. it in front of me. And I was just going to bring up that the 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 first line, the outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day, and so that's where the name comes from. I'll, I'll ask you this question because I want to get your perception on this too. 
where does Stockton's claim to the fact that they are Mudville in the Mudville Nine? Where does Stockton's claim come from on that? Well, speaking of Ernest Thayer, um, he was there in Northern California, and if my memory serves, he also he also covered sports, hmm. and there was a team in Stockton who researchers, there's no way to know for sure because that was so long ago that that you just don't know. For certain, you'll never know. Those people are long gone. And, and, and um, but researchers who looked into this believe that in Ernest Thayer's coverage of sports, he was covering a team in Stockton. Um, not exclusively that was the only team he was covering, but that was a team he was covering. And they believe that there, there might've been similarities to the, the players mentioned in the poem to players on the, the Stockton team. Um, Ernest Thayer was interviewed about this and he claims there was no um, connection. So there, there is that, but I don't know. The researchers researchers believe that that there was a connection. There was one other place that either those same researchers or other researchers claimed it might have or could have been, um, but you don't know for sure. But certainly Stockton has, given all of what I just mentioned, Stockton at least can lay a claim to it without it just being you know blowing smoke. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Also, they lay claim to asparagus capital of the world, which is why they have their asparagus character. Uh, this is this is the ports we're talking about, though. So, so the Mudville Nine, the brand that you created, red and black and white, with an old timey script, an old timey feeling about the whole brand, and an old timey baseball character in the heavily collared baseball uniform. He's got a bat over his shoulder. He's got the old timey baseball cap. Obviously. Everything about this is is meant to uh, meant to evoke a certain period of time, especially in baseball. Was the plan to have the team itself evoke that period? I mean, I, I you know I think of these living historians who play baseball two words right, like in the with the old giant baseball like as big as a grapefruit, where you could peg the players to make an out and you could catch it on one bounce. I mean, all the old timey like baseball rules as you know before the game evolved. The old-timey feeling of the player, was that something that you hoped would carry on to the field of play? Um, well, you just jokingly referred to playing without gloves and stuff like that, which is not the baseball you saw growing up. Your your heroes as a youth were fully um, equipped with modern-day um, baseball equipment, minus all of the, the armor that players today <laughs> wear um i'm sure it, also probably back then few players wore batting gloves and now it's rare when you have a player without batting gloves but certainly in the old days um you know they played without without gloves um you know what in in the very very early days of baseball batters were allowed to specify to the pitcher where they wanted the ball thrown so there's things like that. So of course, I nobody would have expected that the play on the field or the players on the field would mirror the early days of baseball. But the idea was to present other things, the logo, of course, the uniforms, of course, um, and also things like how it, it carried over to things like the um, their stationary. Um, you know, keep in mind, this was the, as you mentioned, this identity was developed in 1999. I find it interesting that the poem was written in mm -hmm. 1888, as mm -hmm. you mentioned, mm -hmm. and the poem, was, I'm sorry, the identity was develop, developed in 1999. So that's it's poetic that's almost kind of, a, yes, very well put. And also just the fact that 99 and Mudville nine. So there's the whole nine <laughs> thing going on. Wow. So, um, um, and also, so back in 1999, um, we used stationary more, more than we use it today. Um, 
much more and we we hardly I can't remember the last time I actually sent a letter in the mail um but back then that's the way correspondences were were done and so business cards letterheads envelopes were an important part of a team's um needs so the design I did for those things was meant to have a period feel. As a matter of fact, I shared with you, and I don't know if you'll be able to share it on, on Twitter, because again, we talk so much about how this is an audio medium, so listeners cannot see this, but I I used old-time typography and did kind of this um, textured look to the background uh, on the, the stationary suite so that it, it felt old. So there was certainly the intention to give an old time look at least mm -hmm. to as many things as we could. Yeah. The uniforms themselves that the players would wear, would they, would those have evoked a, a certain time period? Well, that's a really good question because you, you made a reference to the old timey script on the, um, on the jerseys for the Mudville Nine, which which it is indeed, but the reality is the Mudville Nine goes back to a time when, for the most part, baseball uniforms did not have any lettering on them. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe you would have a single letter, or an it might have been in in old English. But really, in the late 1800s, uniforms did not have um, did not have lettering on them. They were blank. That's why teams were known, like the Boston Red, Red Sox and the the Chicago White Sox. You were you were known by, or you might have just been a team called the Blues, and that was because your socks or your cap or something was that color and that's what differentiated you from the red or the green the other team was wearing now when i say green they didn't have green jerseys it was really the, the color differentiation differentiations were the socks or the caps the socks and or the caps you might have had a green cap and green socks or not might have just been one or the other and um so we didn't we certainly didn't want to have blank jerseys and from a logo standpoint, we also didn't want to have uh, lettering on the jersey. We also didn't want it to be quite as simple as it really otherwise would have been back then because we were looking for something, frankly, that would have a little bit more visual appeal. Sure. And so the inspiration for that Mudville 9 script that I created actually came from a book called Again, this was before we had the internet, which gave us all the, you know, when we did our visual research for, for things that might help us with our design tasks, um, you had to go, either go to the library or go to a bookstore and find a book on the subject. Now, the subject, I, I had books on, on baseball history, so I didn't need to already get that, but I was just looking for inspiration elsewhere that might lead to, to a vintage style lettering that would work for me. So I have this book called Value Guide to Gas Station Memorabilia. <laughs> I'm showing it to Paul. Um, so people just imagine in your, your mind's eye, a book of uh, 300 or so pages, a hardcover, and it's all gas station memorabilia. And in the, there, there's, I'm sorry, what were you going to ask? I just, no, I just said amazing. Okay, so in this book, um, if you've ever seen old gas station gas pumps, they had what were called globes on top, which lit up and had lettering and graphics and other things. Um, you also had oil cans, you had signs, you had containers. There's all these kinds of manner of, of uh, gas station memorabilia in here. And here, there, there's a globe here for refiners pioneer distributors it was uh a globe atop a, a gas pump and this refiner script yeah amazing now now this was not from the 1800s because automobiles i guess were not uh a thing back then so this is it from the 1920s it says so it still goes back quite a ways and mm -hmm. um and that helped me create the 
Now, it's, I didn't copy the script. It was just inspiration for it. I really liked the look and feel of it. And I created something from scratch that was evocative of, of that. And in short, it had a period feel. In this case, not the specific period from which the, the poem was, was born, mm -hmm. but period nonetheless. This feels like as good a time as ever, Dan, for me to tell you. I don't think I've ever said this to you, but my master's thesis when I went to graduate school for my MFA in visual communications involved taking a lot of photos of found yard sale signs uh, out there in the world. I actually had a collection, a huge collection of yard sale signs. And it was all about uh, drawing inspiration from the environment and what graphic designers can learn from a sort of visual vernacular of a place. That book reminds me very much of that project, right? Like this very specific vernacular of gas station memorabilia and and using that as inspiration for a baseball identity, which I think is uh, pretty uh, pretty amazing. So I, I really enjoy that. Well, well, per, to, to your point there, I remember something where I went to the School of Visual Arts in New York City and I had this uh, this teacher named Skip Sorvino. And he was he was very he was a big part of my 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 design education um and and i remember specifically one day this was probably i took him two or three years because i liked him that much because he taught multiple classes there and i remember him doing a you know a slide presentation one day and he had pictures of birds and my first thought is, what do birds have to do with what we're whatever we're going to be talking about? And he said, he said inspiration can come from anywhere. And he showed this one bird. I don't remember specifically what they were, but let's just say one was a Baltimore Oriole. And mm -hmm. he said, and he said, you know, look at the black and the orange of this bird. And then he showed another bird that who knows it might have been a cardinal. And you know, saying, look, you know, look, look at the red and and yellow of red of, of, of its plumage and yellow of its beak and the the way these colors work beautifully together and he, he said inspiration not just color but in the case of what we're talking about here with the Mudville nine the typography um even though that didn't come from a baseball uniform it came from somewhere and then it looked at home on a baseball uniform so inspiration can come from anywhere including yard signs including yard sale signs so I'll ask you this question, and then I'll get you out of here. And then you're going to be back later for Studio Simon Stumpers in this episode. The final question I have for you about the this this brand is this this brand is a little bit different from others in minor league baseball at that time and and now. You know, is before the the you know the wacky era of minor league baseball really took off. It was when a lot of teams were still named for their parent clubs. So you know, basing and a team identity on a poem from more than 100 years ago was different, right? Like this was just outside of what, what you saw in, in minor league baseball at the time. And so just, I mean, it's a fairly big question, but what were the, what were the challenges you faced? What were the, what were the main obstacles to, to creating this identity? You know what, Paul? This was fairly early on in my sports design career. So I did not, <laughs> I did not, I, I thinking back on it, I don't remember there being, to be frank, any obstacles other than what I just mentioned about the 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 jur the uniform design. You know, we we it it would have made a, a lot of sense to make it period specific, mm -hmm. but per what I was just saying, the period from which it came um, wasn't going to make for very appealing uniforms, and so I then had a go a little bit out of, you know, the, the specific period we were working. And so that, that was, if that was a challenge, it was not a, a difficult challenge to come up with a, an alternate solution for. Um, so, you know what, I, I find I have a lot more challenges today than I had back then. Mm -hmm. the, the biggest challenges I have today, one of the biggest challenges is I have been doing this for quite a while. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, three decades in in my sports branding career um i have done a lot of sports branding i have done a lot of baseball branding i have done a lot of minor league baseball branding so 
trying to do things that I haven't done already. That's a big challenge today. Mm. Back then, things were kind of a, 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 a blank slate for me at that point. Um, so uh, I hate to say there weren't a lot of challenges. Mm -hmm. um, however, thinking, because maybe the, talking about challenges would have made for a better answer, but <laughs> thinking back on it, one of the things I would have liked to have done, if I can go back, I, I might've suggested this is if not for their full-time on-field cap, at least doing an alternate cap, that was a pillbox cap, like teams were wearing in, uh, I think they started wearing them in, Todd Radom wouldn't know this better than me, in 1976 when the, the United States was celebrating its bicentennial. So maybe, remember it was, well, I don't know if you remember, and some of your younger listeners might not remember, but people of a certain age will remember when the St. Louis Cardinals, New York Mets, oh, and most noticeably, or notably, the Pittsburgh Pirates were wearing the, I, I hope people know, the listeners know what I mean by these um, um, pillbox caps. You know, mm -hmm. it's the, they're round mm -hmm. in, around them, but flat on the top. Yeah. Um, and that's the same cap that's featured in the Mudville 9, the character is wearing in the, in the Mudville 9 logo. So yeah. um, that would have been neat. Now, this was 1999, getting... It had been done previously in Major League Baseball, so it could be done, but whether New Era would have done it, I don't know, but that would have been pretty cool was for the team to wear those caps on field. That would have been really fun. Dan, speaking of fun, this has been a lot of fun. We're going to see you again in mere moments for Studio Simon Stumpers. In the meantime, people can find you on Instagram at Studio underscore Simon. And on Twitter, not at all, because you're not there yet. So, Dan, <laughs> thank you for joining me. We'll talk again soon. Okay, great. I'll see you in a couple of seconds. All right, everyone, welcome back. This is such a special treat for me. The poem Casey at the Bat was written by Ernest Lawrence Thayer, published on June 3rd, 1888, in the San Francisco Examiner. Right now... I'm so happy to have a team of familiar voices present to you the poem in its entirety, Casey at the Bat. You'll hear from Anna DiTomaso of the Baseball Bucket List podcast, Ed Rivera of the Dad Hat Chronicles, Pat Larson, who brings you his Minor League Baseball Hat History series on Twitter, Baseball by Design wildlife correspondent Ranger Amy Burnett, and then from the great podcast Earned Fun Average, both Eric Prophet and Johnny Bolin will be here. Take it away, team. The outlook wasn't brilliant for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood 4-2 to two with but one inning more to play. And then when Cooney died at first and Barrows did the same, a sickly silence fell upon the patrons of the game. A struggling few got up in deep despair, the rest clung to that hope which springs eternal in the human breast. They thought if only Casey could but get a whack at that. We put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, as did also Jimmy Blake, and the former was a Lulu, and the latter was a cake. So upon that stricken multitude grim melancholy sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey's getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and Blake, the much despised, tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted and men saw what had occurred, there was Jimmy safe at second and Flynn a hugging third. Then from five thousand throats and more there rose a lusty yell. It rumbled through the valley, it rattled in the dell. It knocked upon the mountain and recoiled upon the flat, for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was an ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was a pride in Casey's bearing and a smile lit Casey's face. And when responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat. No stranger in the crowd could doubt, twas Casey at the bat. 10,000 eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. 5,000 tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then while the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, Defiance gleamed in Casey's eye, a sneer curled Casey's lip. 
And now the leather-covered sphere came hurling through the air, and Casey stood up watching it in haughty grandeur there. Closed by the sturdy batsman, the ball, unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of the storm waves on a stern and distant shore. Kill him! Kill the umpire! shouted someone on the stand, and it's likely they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult, he bade the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew, but Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, Strike two! Fraud, cried the maddened thousands, and Echo answered fraud. But one scornful look from Casey and the audience was awed. They saw his face grow stern and cold, they saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let that ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lip. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel violence his bat upon the plate. And now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go. And now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's bluff. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. Somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. It is time once again for your favorite segment on this podcast, Studio Simon Stumpers from Dan Simon, designer extraordinaire, graphic design royalty, who has graciously offered to present a trivia question at the end of every podcast episode. I am having so much fun with this, Dan. I'm so grateful that you take the time out of your day to prepare these questions and come on every single episode to ask me a trivia question. I can tell you unequivocally that this segment has been a huge hit out there on the Twitterverse. Well, Paul, they say the only stupid questions are the ones you don't ask. So <laughs> I, I like to ask a lot of questions and these trivia segments allow me to do so. I've heard some stupid questions out there. I disagree with that. I think that that's uh, I think there are stupid questions, but certainly not studio Simon stumpers. We're talking about the Mudville 9. You've obviously already been on this episode talking about your work on that project. Now it's time for, for to turn the tables for you to ask me a trivia question about the Mudville 9. Okay, here we go. Um, you will see Mighty Casey featured on all manner of product. There are, over the years, dozens of illustrated books, paintings, prints, bobbleheads. There are statues in various cities. Um, there, there's Casey's Corner Restaurant at Disney World. There's even an episode of The Twilight Zone entitled The Mighty Casey. Mm. Um, and so today's studio Simon Stumper asks, Mighty Casey was featured on or in two of the following three things. Which of these three was he not? Okay. Was it A, an animated Disney film? B, a box of cigars, or C, a postage stamp. Holy smokes. Animated Disney film, a cigar box, and a postage stamp. All of those sound so plausible. I got to pick the one that is not. Box of cigars is certainly a possibility. You know, sensibilities change. I mean, today you would not think of a, you know, a fictional athlete hawking tobacco products out there but i think that it's plausible you know that at some time between 1888 and now that casey was featured on a box of cigars let's see I, okay so the, the postage stamp certainly seems possible it's, it's something that the post office would do as as part of you know commemorating popular culture something that they do a, a fair amount of and then the disney animated movie all right i'm gonna i, I this is I'm I'm just sort of guessing based on which of these just doesn't ring true with me. I'm going to say the postage stamp. That one doesn't ring true with me. Okay. 
Um, I'm sorry to say, Paul, swing and a miss today. Um, <laughs> Mighty Paul has struck out. So <laughs> That's a setup. That was a setup. Okay. I, you know what? Your thinking is perfectly good here because a box of cigars sounds completely plausible. Now, may it have actually happened? I'm going to issue this caveat. It might have. But if it if it did, I'm not familiar with it and I'm not familiar with everything. So it could have very well happened. I just I've seen cigar. You know, there's being a graphic designer looking in looking at cigar packaging, um, both the boxes and the cigar bands. I've, I've done that for various projects. And. Matter of fact, when I was doing the Tampa Tarpons um, identity, that was some of the things I looked into for inspiration because the cigar industry is huge in, in Ybor City or Ybor City. Sorry, Floridians, if I pronounced it wrong. One of those is right. It's either Ybor or Ybor. Um, Cuban community there is really big. And so I, I was looking into cigar packaging and cigar bands. So anyway, um, in this case, um, an animated Disney film, which was not your, your guess, but... Mm -mm. Um, Casey at the Bat was an animated short that was a segment in the 1946 Disney release, Make Mine Music. So there were other segments of that release, and it was later released as a standalone short in 1954. Um, in 1996, the United States Postal Service issued a set of stamps depicting four American folk heroes. In addition to Mighty Casey, the set included Paul Bunyan, John Henry, and Pecos Bill. Um, and cigars, in this case, close, but no cigar. <laughs> you know how sometimes it's easier to, you know, if your team loses a game, it's easier if they lose 10 to one than if they lose, you know, on a walk off five to four in the 10th, you know, it's, 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 it's easier to take emotionally if you get blown out rather than in a close game. My second guest was the Disney animated film. So cigars, I, I discounted cigars right away and that was the correct answer. So Dan. Thank you very much for everything you've contributed to this episode. I look forward to speaking to you next time for another Studio Simon Stumper. Okay, I'm looking forward to the next time myself. So uh, until then, I hope you're, you do well, and I hope all you listeners out there do the same.